Namaste and welcome to Pods by PEI, a policy discussion series brought to you by Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. My name is Kushi Hang. In today's episode, we have PEI colleague Sudipa Patak in conversation with urban planner Shinkala Khatiwara on Kathmandu's urban planning principles and priorities. Shinkala is the founder and executive director of Gatha, an architecture and design firm. She has led multiple national and international architectural and urban planning projects where she collaborated with a range of stakeholders, including local government bodies, development partners, technical experts, and community members. She has a master's in urban planning from Harvard University. Sudipa and Shrinkala discuss Kathmandu's urban planning history, current state, unique challenges, and opportunities. The two explore the core principle behind how urban planning is approached in the city as they recount Shrinkala's own experiences working in the field. They then evaluate the city's priorities as exemplified by its recent urban planning projects and end with an exploration on potentials and possibilities. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Shrinkala. Welcome to Pods by PEI. I am excited to have you here and look forward to our conversation. To start, could you please tell us what drew you to urban planning? Thank you so much for having me here. To start with, I did my undergrad in architecture. And to give you a brief idea, architecture mostly deals with individual projects. However, in 2019, after my Miss Nepal year was over, I participated in a voluntary organization called Riksha, where we worked with the Lalitpur municipality in identifying open spaces that had been misused. What meant by misused is that they had either been used or encroached for illegal parking or they were just underutilized. So through Riksha, what we did was we collaborated with this municipality and started working on three or four open spaces and we worked on converting them into usable, publicly accessible green spaces. Throughout this year, I kept realizing a few things. One is that a city was a very complex being. And I was curious also because cities were not just about open spaces. And to develop open spaces, you had to collaborate with communities, which involved a lot of social issues, economic issues, religious and cultural issues. So in this particular year, um, my curiosity towards cities and its ecosystem grew and I realized that I really needed to study further to understand how it worked as a whole. That led me to study urban planning and led me to be more curious about urban issues. These days, when I scroll social media, I get to see these beautifully nostalgic pictures of Kathmandu Valley and its settlement from the past, probably from 50s or 60s. And when we look at the Kathmandu Valley right now, we see a completely different picture of the settlement and valley in itself. Can we quickly touch on two key components, urban planning and Kathmandu? These are rarely spoken together. Can you provide a brief overview of the history and current state of urban planning? Sure. I think we all have gone through this this nostalgia of the past. Like you said, now and again, this this image of ancient Kathmandu, which kind of looks like current day Amsterdam, pops up on our social media and we suddenly start thinking, what happened, right? What happened? We used to be such a beautiful city. What changed? 
So to start with, we need to understand that Kathmandu is an ancient city and its history dates over 2000 years. I'm not a historian, but uh, I can confidently say that Kathmandu is a city that was built before cars. What that means is that uh, the buildings around Kathmandu, the public spaces, uh, the roads that we see today, especially inside Ring Road, when they were built initially, were not built for cars. These were cities built for people to walk. Later on, they were used for bicycles, for informal vendors. In these old pictures, you see people carrying their produce from, from their farms and bringing it into the city. So the city was built around people, their livelihood. However, if you look at Kathmandu Valley outside of Ring Road or outside of the ancient areas in Bhaktapur or Lalitpur or Kathmandu, you'll realize that these are postcard cities. That means they started to sprawl out after we, we got motorized access and people could travel longer distances for commute, for work for livelihood, for education, and they were dependent on uh, cars, on buses, on bikes to do that. So these are two distinct facts we need to understand at first. Second is we often think that Kathmandu was developed very haphazardly and there has never been any planning done. However, that is wrong. There have been many master plans in the past that has brought Kathmandu to be the way it is today. For example, there was a zoning done in Kathmandu which identified areas for uh, industries, for farming, for airport as we see it today. And as future expansion zones, we also identified river corridors. So uh, Kathmandu Valley in multiple phases in history has actually developed many master plans. Some have been incredibly su successful, some have not. Other example is the building bylaws that we see today. You can't build without building permits. You can't build buildings as tall as you want unless you are breaking the rule of law. You can't encroach someone else's land. You need a certain uh, road access to, to reach uh, a certain kind of land in Kathmandu. So there have been building bylaws. You hear of GLD, you hear of many rules. If, if ever you have planned to build uh, an infrastructure in the valley, you'll realize that there are many plans in place. However, uh, we have failed to incorporate these multiple phased master plans into, into a sustainable vision. And Another important thing to understand why it happened or why we see a half a sad development in Kathmandu is that during the Maoist insurgency, Nepal as a whole saw a vacancy of local government leaders. We didn't have a functioning elected local government or local body, which meant that the bureaucrats were a de facto government agencies, right? And, and they were career bureaucrats. So there wasn't a public mandate or publicly chosen government to look after a lot of things. 2000. 11, I believe, was a crucial year when uh, Baburam Bhattrai um, became prime minister. Uh, and he was one of the first prime ministers to actually uh, be interested in urban issues. He also has a master's in urban planning, I believe. So he spearheaded a campaign of road expansion in, in Kathmandu City, which was, I believe, praised by a lot of people. But we can go deeper later on if we have time to why that 
had good and bad both but that was i think a time when kvpd kathmandu valley planning and development authority was formed that was a very important point in history because kvpd worked on creating many building bylaws and working as a as a central government's agent in in planning and development of kathmandu valley so just giving you a brief idea of how kathmandu valley has been shaped today Yeah so that's like a brief snapshot of history. On that note Shinkhala you brought up a very important topic of 2011 road expansion project led by then prime minister Baburam Bhattrai and we will definitely delve in the topic in depth later on. For now uh in that light uh, in whatever we just talked about maybe we can also talk about uh, what are the unique challenges and opportunities the city faces and also in what ways have you observed the scene of urban planning is different in Kathmandu than from any other cities like every city Kathmandu valley is unique and it's also important to realize that there's never a one size fits all when we talk about cities every city has its own history its own traditions its own ecosystem so it's important to realize that every city needs to have a specialized approach to development in that light Kathmandu i think is unique and special i say special because it has a lot of intangible heritages apart from the tangible ones which intertwine very closely with the physical environment so Kathmandu has if we talk about Kathmandu valley it has three darbar squares three ancient old town cities and settlements apart from that we also need to realize that Kathmandu valley although we use it as uh, a single entity for example when you say i live in bhaktapur it is also kathmandu or if someone asks if if you are someone who lives for example in kirtipur you'll say you live in kathmandu right kathmandu is synonym to kathmandu valley as a whole however in terms of jurisdiction kathmandu has 18 municipalities so each municipality has a different mayor has a different budget has a different areas to work with so 18 municipalities working together together inside Kathmandu valley which intermingle together so if you live in Lalitpur you work in Kathmandu you have family in Bhaktapur you have friends in Kirtipur it's a very natural intermingling that happens between these uh, jurisdictions so Kathmandu is unique in that sense as well because although you are a uh, mayor of let's say Bhaktapur you can't work alone you always need to work in collaboration of of all these other municipalities as a whole that's why kathmandu is unique in that front second like i mentioned it is a old town religious and cultural city it has a lot of intangible heritages which i mentioned earlier what it means is that i'll share you a, a small example Inside Kathmandu Valley there are different routes for chariot processions that happen for Indra Jatra for Ratnamachindranath Jatra so in, even in the ancient town they had created the city and they had created roads as such that they could fit in the chariots they could fit in the people and they also had spaces for chariots to take a rest so they had little plazas where you could rest the chariot at night where people could do the religious offerings and all of that so it was already planned around the religious activities of the city so intangible heritages were shaping the physical infrastructure of the city so whenever we are thinking about planning in Kathmandu you also have to think about these heritages these cultural sites the traditions and all that comes along with it furthermore i remember i mentioned earlier that Kathmandu 
uh, valley, especially the, the old town Kathmandu was designed for people, for people's livelihood to, to accommodate informal economy because uh, although we are moving towards formalization, majority of, of our economic activities happen informally inside Kathmandu Valley. So you, you see a lot of street vendors, you see a lot of stores that probably sometimes are not even registered. You know, you see these little grocery stores in your neighborhood that have been passed down upon generations and generations and and it's like a part of your 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 community right so you need to understand these nuances of Kathmandu when you see it furthermore I think another important factor is Kathmandu is actually not a very big city which makes it very ideal for active modes of mobility what that means is that it's a very walkable city if we had the infrastructure for it Kathmandu would have been a very walkable and bikeable city if you look at uh, the size of Ring Road, uh, the circumference might be 27 kilometers, but the radius, that means from the, the edge of Ring Road to the city center from any point, it's hardly four to five, four to five kilometers, which means it's very easy to bike across town to go to the city center, even if you're uh, living in the, in the edge of Ring Road. So uh, we have to realize uh, that Kathmandu is a very, it's, it's a perfect city to, to take up walking and biking. Another important factor is in terms of climate, we are an ideal city as well because our temperatures don't get very hot or very cold. It doesn't snow, neither does it get above 30-32 uh, degrees even in peak summer. So Kathmandu is a perfect city in that sense as well. So that also makes it very, very unique. I think that the, the another important thing I've realized, especially after studying in the U.S. and working in Argentina, is that we have a very nice density uh, of people living in the city. What that means is that um, we have an ideal number of people living in an ideal a square footage of area. And why it's important is because whenever we are building infrastructure like road, sanitation, uh, water supply, it's important that the, the buck we are spending for these infrastructure can really as many people as possible or this ideal number of people which makes economic sense for you to build this infrastructure so having good density is also a very good thing so um, in my brief observation I feel like um, these are some unique qualities of Kathmandu towards challenges uh, these are opportunities I mean opportunities and challenges always go go hand in hand but we do have um, a major challenge of um, basic infrastructure again of quality of life uh, of people living in, in the city. I talked about Maoist insurgency earlier and how we had a void in local government. What that also did was it created a surge of migration of population into Kathmandu Valley at a very short time. It felt probably safer for people to migrate to Kathmandu. Even I considered changing schools and coming to Kathmandu, but it, it, it failed for me. But a lot of my friends, I remember, and do when we were in fifth or sixth grade. So there was a major flux, not just in Kathmandu. I know we are very focused on, on the capital city right now, but even throughout Nepal in major cities, there was an influx of, of migration. And this happened around the time when we didn't have a local government, when we didn't have a sustainable master plan for the city, when the city was not ready to plan for this, this population influx. So during that time, we saw haphazard urbanization, we saw haphazard roads, 
Ireland's construction. We saw that these new settlements and communities were, were popping up every now and then without the necessary infrastructure that is water supply, that is sewage line, that is even properly managed electric poles, waste management systems. We didn't have anything, but the need was so important and urgent that the city had to grow. So during that time, there was some very permanent damage made to the city. But uh, I think it is reversible with very sensitive and planned action. That is one major challenge that the city still faces and the, the growing population is not going to stop anytime soon. You gave a very important insight on how Kathmandu was planned for pre-car era. On that note, the planning might have missed how Kathmandu might face a growth in population or sudden influx of the migratory activities that happened in such a short period of time and how modern technology and vehicles might take over the city very soon. With the surge in population, Kathmandu Valley now hosts over 3 million people in an area of less than 600 square kilometer. This increase underscores the growing importance of open spaces. A few months ago, I remember uh, discussing with a friend how whenever we seek a breather, wish to go for a quick run or a walk, or even meet people, we find a noticeable lack of open interactive spaces. More often so, we resort to restaurants or cafes for such activities. Earlier, you mentioned that green and open spaces are one of your areas of interest. Could you discuss the significance of these spaces in urban planning? Also, what does a green and open space mean to an urban planner like you? For me, green and open space is the soul of the city. So buildings are the physical body and all the spaces in between the buildings for me signify the whole essence and the soul of the city. Right now, unfortunately, in the name of open space, we only have roads and our roads are dedicated for vehicles and not for people, unfortunately. So for urban planners, I think a city is and should be human-centric. It should be focused around people and not around cars. Now, I want to segue into something I'm deeply passionate about. And in my two years of studying urban planning and whatever I've seen and learned, I came back to Nepal with a hope that I could influence three major areas of, of my interest. One was green and open spaces. Second was making our cities more friendly for active modes of mobility. What that means is walking and biking and any other active mode. And third, making public transportation robust. Now, why I'm mentioning these three things is because I personally feel like you can't achieve one without achieving the other. They all go hand in hand. And I'll tell you why. So you see, uh, like you mentioned, Kathmandu is around 600 uh, square kilometers. So there's a limitation to how much a city can grow. A city always has a growth boundary and it always has a maximum carrying capacity. And for that, we need to realize that every inch of space that we give away to cars, we're taking it away from people to walk for building open spaces and green spaces and parks where your children can play, where your grandfathers, your grandmothers can go on a stroll, where you can hang out with your friends, like you mentioned. So to understand this, Let's take let's take a snapshot of a street at any given point. An ideal street should have at least two lanes 
for for cars, for bikes, for buses. It needs to have a line of trees for environmental reasons, for shade, for biodiversity. And then there needs to be a sidewalk. And in between or after, you know, somewhere in the section of the road, you also need to have two uh, bicycle lanes. So this uh, is an ideal idea of a street, right? Um, however, Kathmandu already has um, reached its maximum capacity at many points to how much can the road expand further without encroaching private property, which is a different issue. We might not be able to delve into that right now, but private property is a very sensitive issue. You don't want to keep on expanding your, your roads by, by taking away someone's private property. So we already have reached kind of our maximum capacity at a lot of places to how much can a road grow. What that means is that now for us to create sidewalks, we need to take a road back. We need to take space back from the cars. Now, when the population is growing, how do you even take the space back when the congestion is so high? You can't even contemplate taking away a lane from car and giving it to bikes or giving it to the, the pedestrians or the sidewalks, right? So for that, you need to start moving people more efficiently. What that means is that you need to move more people at a smaller amount of area. Buses are, are a great idea for that. Trains are a great idea for that. They, they are very efficient in moving people in a smaller area at a very fast pace. And that is why when I said three things, you need public transportation so that you can move people more efficiently in a smaller space. You need active modes of transportation, you need sidewalks, you need bike lanes, and that's how you get bike lanes, by moving people in buses and then taking uh, away spaces from cars and private vehicles. And third, when I mentioned open spaces, I want to mention a very important point that Whenever you buy a car, whenever you buy a motorbike, you need to create home for your car at at least eight different places. What does that mean? So if you buy a car, I own a car. So so I own a car because of desperation in this city right now. And it's, it has become a necessity for many people, car or bikes or personal vehicle. But my car, for example, needs a lot of homes. One is when I go home, I need to park it. So whenever I'm building a home, I always need to think, oh, I need to separate a certain amount of land for my car. Or whenever I'm renting my office space, I again need to find a space for the same car. So my car already has two homes. And again, now I'm going to, to a grocery store. I'm naturally going to choose a store that has parking. So my car already has three homes now. I came to your studio. I was looking for a space to park. So it has four homes. Now I go to a hospital. I go to a coffee shop. So this single car now needs at least eight homes. So when you're buying a car, you're not just buying a car. You're taking real estate away from the same 600 square kilometers of area in the city. So same with bikes or same with any personal vehicle that you use. Unlike private vehicles, when you're using a public transportation, it only lives on the street and wherever you're parked uh, at night. So it only needs like one home. So you're not taking a lot of real estate away from the city. Now, where can you use that space? Is That's where open spaces and green parks come in. That's how you create spaces for, for greenery, for open spaces, for plazas and, and uh, spaces for people to interact. So these three things always go hand in hand. That is why you see planners being very unhappy when cities 
try to enforce a mandatory free parking uh, for commercial uh, buildings. For example, if parking had to be mandatory for any complex that you would build, that value would get added on to the real estate, to the rent, to, to the end product. So the end consumer always faces the burden of free parking. Free parking is never free. You, the, the cost always gets transferred to the end user. So if my grocery store is going to have mandatory free parking, the cost gets transferred to me as a consumer in terms of an added markup in the, the price of the goods that I use. I know I said a lot of things, but I wanted to mention why these three things were very crucial and interconnected. One is green open spaces. Another is active modes of uh, uh, mobility and third is uh, public transportation one cannot happen without the other moving forward shrinkala can you share from your observations how they are used or not used in nepali cities from my experience with local governments and even with residents of cities throughout Nepal so far, I've realized that parks are seen or open spaces are merely seen as um, aesthetic value of the city. They are seen as, I think we are very stuck in this idea. You know, when you think of a park, you think of this this beautiful, symmetrical garden of the Versailles, or, you know, you are, you are stuck in that colonial idea of what a open green park should look like. But a park is for your well-being. You should be able to utilize it in your everyday life, uh, either as a place, uh, as a playground for your children. It, it should be utilized as a space where you take morning walks or job friends. It should have enough places for a group to gather around, hang out. It should have uh, trees tall and dense enough to provide shade when it's summer or or sun when it's winter. It needs to have plants. Plant, it, it, it needs to have landscaping done such that it fits the landscape. It fits the usability of the park. But unfortunately, we only see parks as um, places to take pictures at, which is not the primary purpose of a park. Even with an evolutionary perspective, human beings are not uh, built to be living in a concrete jungle in a small space and that is why parks are so important especially at a place where real estate is so expensive where people cannot afford to have an open lawn uh, in their homes parks are where people go to mingle with nature parks are where people get to breathe or get a space to play or make friends and when you're not building parks you're doing a terrible harm to uh, the residents, you are taking away someone's childhood by not letting them have a fair chance to to play with their friends or even make friends. You are taking away someone's retirement life by not giving them an opportunity to go out of their house or not giving them anything to do outside their home because it's so unsafe to, to even get into our streets anymore. You are doing a terrible, terrible harm to to the society as a whole when you're not building parks so yes i have uh, noticed that cities have shown interest in open spaces but i feel like governments and people are yet to realize that parks are more than aesthetic value and it has so much more to offer hi there this is somitra nepani from policy entrepreneurs inc we hope you're enjoying parts by pi as you know, creating this show takes a lot of time and resources, and we rely on the support of our community to keep things going. 
If you've been enjoying the show and would like to help us out, we'd really appreciate it if you could become a patron on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows listeners like you to support creators like us with a small monthly donation. Your support will go a long way in helping us continue creating high-quality content for you. So if you're interested in supporting our show and becoming a part of our community, head on over to Patreon and become a patron today. You can find us at patreon.com slash podsbypei. Every little bit helps and we can't thank you enough for your support. Now let's get back to the episode. Moving forward with talking about the challenges in creating open spaces, uh, Shinkhala, you are not only an advocate for open spaces, but you have also collaborated with the Lalitpur Metropolitan Office to develop pocket parks in several locations in Lalitpur. Could you share your specific experiences of this process? Also, what are the challenges encountered in developing and maintaining open spaces and other urban planning initiatives in Kathmandu? I had an incredibly eye-opening experience working with Lalitpur municipality in in creating these open spaces in multiple fronts. We often tend to feel like local government bodies or government officials, especially people in power, elected officials, have all the agency to do all the things they've they've promised to do. However, we overlook knowingly or unknowingly, that there's a lot of politics that goes behind implementation of projects. These are not straightforward. These are not mathematical solutions. There are so many challenges you encounter, even while dealing with something that might seem very easy as building a small pocket park, right? I want to walk you through my personal realization in this experience. So imagine you want to build a park somewhere. You have to first identify land. And most often there's a lot of confusion in who owns this public land. There isn't a lot of agency with the local body to just take a land and develop it. There's a lot of collaboration that has to happen between the wards, the municipality, and even the federal and the national government at some some points. Uh, You have to see what the land is currently being used for. Is it used for economic activity? Even if it's being encroached, you have to be very sensitive if there are people who are dependent on this land for their livelihood. You have to then realize what could be the ideal solution. Because like I said, land is limited. And how do you make it the most functional? How do you make sure that it's not encroached by parking? And how do you make sure that it's sustainable? These are some big questions you have to answer. And even if you're successful in doing all of that, designing a perfect park, bringing all the stakeholders together, one major challenge you'll face is on the maintenance of the park. Unfortunately, so far, our cities do not have a mandatory parks and open spaces department which is a roadblock. So that's what we faced when we were working with LMC, even when we had a very uh, powerful uh, mayor who was a biggest cheerleader for open spaces. We had such limited budget uh, because everything has to go through the Procurement Act and the Procurement Act almost never allows room for hiring professionals like landscape architects or transportation engineers, especially when you're building a park. 
it's very difficult for even mayors to to hire consultants uh, the way they want to or the way that should be needed. There's no dedicated parks and recreation department. So the maintenance of the park solely depends on the mayor and the stakeholders willingness to separate a budget for it year in year out there's no mechanism that does it naturally since you just talked about how uh, different uh, stakeholders in, involved in creating something as small as pocket parks when we are talking about infrastructure project in certain municipality or a district in itself i would like to discuss more about your point on the governance system and how the multiple overlaps and redundancy within them are hindering the urban planning project since not only does this intrigue me but you concluded an intensive research on this very topic last year but before we dive into the mechanisms can we briefly paint a picture of all the key government stakeholders Sure, I think it's a difficult task to <laughs> mention all the stakeholders relating to open spaces um in Nepal right now, but just to give you a brief idea, if you're talking about urban development for example, there are multiple departments concerned with urban development spread across ministries in the national government. So for example department of land reform and management is under a certain ministry the department of roads is under ministry of physical infrastructure and transportation and then there is land management division planning monitoring and evaluation division which for, falls under a completely different ministry that is the land development poverty alleviation ministry i hope it still exists right now because our ministries keep changing or for example if you are talking about roads let's say there are so many different stakeholders solely for roads when you say there's a lot of traffic congestion in kathmandu oh my god why doesn't the traffic do anything about it it's not just the traffic's job when you talk about traffic jam the municipality is responsible department of transportation management is responsible traffic police is responsible department of roads is responsible and different provincial ministries trees that are newly formed are also responsible so there is a lot of overlap in who is responsible for open spaces in who is responsible for creating plazas and parks in the city but the most natural answer for me at least from the case studies that i've seen across the world is it's the best idea to give local government the complete agency to to develop parks but again often throughout the world federal governments are very reluctant to share power with the local bodies because they feel like it is going to weaken them right so nepal is facing the same problem right now whenever a local government tries to exercise its power there are a lot of roadblocks from different ministries from even electricity authority from water supply departments there's so much that goes on just for creating one single park that you realize that we need a more efficient system I want to take us to the present condition since we're talking not just about open spaces all the three components that I said are essential for all of it I want to touch upon public transportation in Kathmandu for example something good has happened very recently we formed Kathmandu Valley 
Public Transport Management Authority. When you see the express bus lane in Kathmandu, I believe that was the, the work of this authority that was recently formed. And it was formed to bring together the different jurisdictions that were involved, different departments that were involved in the same public transportation sphere. And also to bring together the 18 municipalities inside Kathmandu Valley because you can't solve public transportation in the valley alone as an individual municipality. Like I said, we are all interlinked. So this is, I think, a good example of the step forward in transportation or public transportation sector by creating this authority. And by the way, the mayor of Kathmandu leads this, this authority. You're creating an agency that overrides all the other agencies that were also rela related to transportation and their, their decisions become the mandate for everybody else to follow. So it's very important to establish these hierarchies, these clear hierarchies so that there is no overlap between government officials. Another example of this redundancy is the KVPD that I mentioned to you earlier. In 2011, our then Prime Minister Baburam Bhadrai worked strongly towards creating Kathmandu Valley Planning and Development Authority. When KVPD was created, it was created seeing a vacancy in the local government body, which was non-existent at that point. But right now, if you take an example of Kathmandu Municipality, it has its own planning body, which is called the CPC, the City Planning Commission. So oftentimes what happens is KVPD undermines CPC and CPC undermines KVPD. And there's a lot of friction between th these two agencies. CPC feels like KVPD is now redundant. We don't need it anymore. But KVPD being under the Ministry of Urban Development feels like it has a authority to, to have the higher say in what the rule of law is. I remember once I asked one of my professors, I believe, who is also an urban planner, who creates the bylaws of our city? It's a simple straightforward question, right? Who creates the floor area ratio? Who creates the, the, the right of the way in the city? And the answer was not very clear in today's structure, apparently. I hope it is right now. This conversation happened around two years ago, so I hope things have changed. But there's a lot of overlap and confusion. So this is used by government officials and elected officials alike as a scapegoat to why things are not going the way they are. And they're also used as you know way to not do anything because everyone's like this is not my job and this is not my job then whose job it is then and whenever someone actually tries to say hey let's say local government is like I want to take responsibility of green parks and open spaces they are met with a lot of friction with all these departments who are not very cooperative unfortunately and I mentioned politics uh, earlier now this also happens be because a lot of People in power usually have their own political leaning. They are le they are leaning to a certain party, or it's it's very new for an elected official to have no political party behind them, which is good and bad again. But it's very difficult to find a cohesion when there's so many different things and pushing each other and creating friction. So like I mentioned, Kathmandu Valley's new transportation authority is the way forward because that sets a clear hierarchy, that sets who's the leader, That's that now we know, okay, now for anything related to public transportation, this 
this is the authority i go to i don't go to department of roads i don't go to department of transportation management i go to this authority and now it's clear so i think this needs to happen with all the overlaps that's happening especially with open spaces as we've been talking about there needs to be a dedicated parks and recreation or parks and open spaces name it however you want but there needs to be an agency inside the municipality inside the local body that not just has the authority to plan for the parks in the city but also has the agency to demand for budgets to demand that we need this much to maintain this park to demand that we need to hire these consultants this these specialists to work on parks because an architect might not be the perfect person to do landscape designing you know a civil engineer might not be the perfect person to do transportation planning these are very nuanced and very sensitive subjects and we need specialists to deal with it so we need this departments with us which has the agency to hire people when they need agency to demand for budget the agency to to actually execute the work that they're given like boston has a parks and recreation department buenos aires had had its own open spaces department which was incredibly powerful uh, that ensures that these parks are well maintained this ensures that we have we are watering these plants regularly and they don't just die off because one budget cycle we forgot to put budget for for this plan so there is a sustainable pattern that goes forward and you know who does what and who's responsible for what as we talk about challenges related to open spaces let's take a minute to think about uh, social inclusion can you explain the intersection between urban planning and social equity is social equity and inclusion a priority of this practice and if it is how can practitioners uphold it maybe you can draw some insights from your own experiences and observations sure i think this is one of the major reasons why anyone studies urban planning or why anyone gets into elected positions so on, so like every other profession i think urban planning also is primarily rooted in social equity we study planning so that we have equitable development we study planning so that not only the privileged have the access to the good things in the city now for examples I know I've been very critical of Dubai or Middle Eastern city as a whole in one of my podcasts in the past for a different reason but today I'm critical of them for how they've practiced urban planning so you see there are cities in the world where no matter how rich or poor you are the experience of the city is the same for you you travel the same uh, route you you go to the same parks um the street sides are accessible to everyone the streetscape is for everyone you might not have the money to go into the restaurant but you can still walk through the street that has these beautiful palaces and restaurants so whenever i talk about an an ideal idea of 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 city which is completely socially equitable i think of amsterdam i think of cities in europe again mostly precar cities which provide equal experience for you if you're making a graph of your experience of the city based on how much money you have the graph is usually pretty 
Okay, it's constant. Really, it's constant, yeah. The more money you have, the experience of the city changes slightly, but the angle is not very steep. However, Dubai or other Middle Eastern cities, if you think about them, the experience of the city grows exponentially with the amount of money that you have. For you to really love Dubai, you need to have a lot of money in your pocket. Otherwise, all you see is skyscrapers from a highway and nothing else. Else. But for you to love Dubai, for example, you think about a yacht in the ocean, which costs you money. You think about Dubai Mall, which costs you money. You think about a good hotel or a restaurant with good AC, which costs you money, you know. So the experience of the city grows exponentially with more money that you have. And that's Dubai, unfortunately. And there are many other cities who are like that. And Kathmandu is growingly becoming similar to that. When I think of Kathmandu and when I think of Chamsikhel, I'm like, I love Kathmandu, you know, I love Lalit. I, I love how progressive we are. I love how clean we are. We're pretty walkable. But as soon as you leave the radius of this, this Kathmandu, premium Kathmandu, as I call it, that is Jamsikhel Sanipa area or Lajimpat Maharajganj area, Kathmandu is not a very good place to live in. There are a lot of holes um, on the roads. There are no sidewalks. Congestion is all time high. It's dirty. Uh, there are no street lights because um, there hasn't been investment uh, from um, the government equally in these areas. The areas that are good are good because of private participation, because the restaurants at Chomsikil benefit from Chomsikil being this way. They, they support to have a cleaner area. You know, they're, they're willing to create an area that is that seems more beautiful, that seems cleaner. Unfortunately, there are many places in Kathmandu that, that lack basic necessities, that lack basic infrastructure. And same is with open spaces. A city that has a lot of parks, a city that has a lot of plaza, that has a lot of open spaces, open to public for free is the highest markation. It's the highest identification that the city is equitable. If you look at the walkability index of a city, if the walkability index is high, I feel like urban planning has been done right because if the city is walkable, it's for everyone. Right. Uh, unlike cities that are built for cars that are not for everyone, that are for people who have cars, that are for people who have money and a city that has poor public transportation. That's a, a, a mark that the city is not doing very well in making it equitable because it's treating their, their residents unfairly. It's giving away the, the only open space that is the road to cars that is owned by the top three or two percentile of the population. And taking it away from everyone else. So it's very important to to notice these things when you look at a city and then notice how equitable it is. I remember we had a big debate in the public about the street vendors and whether or not should street vendors be allowed to sell on the street side. I think we should. And Kathmandu municipality recently signed an agreement saying they will work towards accommodating informal vendors and recognizing their importance in the city, recognizing how important it is for letting them have a space to sell their goods, to make their livelihood, not at a big cost. You know, you can plan these things out. We're not saying 
let them take over the the streets we are saying account you know you think about them be empathetic towards them realize that the city is built for everyone and there should be a fair chance for people to have a economic and social growth which does not usually happen uh when we when we just look at things as black and white another important thing i think i also want to want to mention that as people we need to be more critical uh of uh what's right and what's wrong right we need to recognize that there are fringes where people are divided and we, we need to acknowledge that there will be difference in opinion and not everything goes by rule of law because law is also ambiguous we often think that law is as straight as black and white but it's not law is as ambiguous as it can get and it's as case specific as it can get i want to share an example with you on how we have not been very critical about evaluating decisions that are being made for example in darbar mark recently we removed car and bike parking from street side from road side and there was a lot of public appreciation for it i mean on the get quite might seem right i mean we don't want parking it's an eyesore number 1 and it doesn't do any benefit from all the explanations that i've done so far it seems like a good idea right however the consequence of it is very important we took away parking but we did not use it for uh, increasing sidewalks we did not use the space that that uh, was freed up by freeing the streets from parking to plant more trees we did not use it for the people we gave it back to the cars because now the same street is still used by the cars not for parking but for driving right i mean we're giving a broader street for cars so that they can probably speed up which is again unsafe and nothing has happened we have not given it back to the people at all so we need to be very critical of these decisions who is it benefiting you know why are we doing this making these decisions and we need to have a very straightforward black and white answer to this spe- specifically whenever we make these decisions so yeah i think an equitable city has many indicators and it's very easy to identify these indicators all you have to do is realize that every decision you make has consequences and you have to be careful whether it is disproportionately causing a disadvantage to a certain group of people or disproportionately creating an advantage for a certain group of people and as planners we want every decision in the city to be equally uh, useful for most residents and especially uh, we need decisions that support uh, the bottom of the pyramid which are often overlooked talking about kathmandu mayor's uh, actions it has truly divided the kathmandu residents into two opposing sides but this is not the first time something like this has happened the 2011 road expansion project spearheaded by then prime minister baburam bhattrai had a similar reaction especially in a form of demonstrations from those who were evicted now you have evaluated the road expansion project as an urban planner and criticized what is generally appreciated development project and in what ways are these projects similar the project that is being led right now and the project that happened in uh, 2011 i remember i wrote a paper in school and by midterm i had to present a draft and my draft was about how the road expansion project was one of the best urban planning initiatives of all time that i've seen in my lifetime at least however 
by the time that I reached my final submission, I ended up criticizing the whole project because there were so many layers that were unseen to us. Because I remember all of us, even today, we are like, thank God the road was expanded. Even with that expansion, the traffic congestion is still so high. Can you imagine the traffic had the major roads inside Kathmandu not been widened back then? So these layers that I talked about that we often seem to overlook is... I found out that when the road expansion happened, 90% of the houses that were uh, demolished or that were taken away by the roads belonged to the indigenous Newark community, 90% of it. And which is natural, you know, when you think about it, Kathmandu has been an ancient settlement, specially inhabited by the Newark community. And there was a lot of resentment in that community about the fact that the government was taking away their private property to give it back to what they then called immigrants and they felt like government was not very sensitive towards them. You see, these projects are often very polarizing. There will always be supporters. There will always be people who think that it was a bad idea. For me, I think we have to be very rational about things. Development is necessary. I want to say that we should never widen roads or we should never have roads for cars because with technology, cars are important. Vehicles are important. However, we also need to um, realize that every action, like I mentioned earlier, has disproportionate harm to certain communities. And the best we can do as planners, as, as government individuals, is be more sensitive towards it. Uh, for example, when the road expansion happened, I, I remember that um, a lot of demolition work was done in the middle of night or early in the morning so that the protesters could not stop it. The families were not given due notice. They were not given due time to you know, accommodate these changes that were going to happen in their lives. There were elderly who had spent their whole life in this house, who had to leave this 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 place at 90 years old, where they had all their memories, all their community, and they had to be dispersed somewhere else. There were families who depended on the rent from the houses solely. That was their sole property and who went be below poverty line after the de demolition happened. There were families with children who had to change schools for their children in the middle of school year in the matter of a few days, which was not very fair to them. So if you go back and look at development from an individual, a family's perspective, you, has, you start to see these nuances. You start to see that every development project comes at a cost of someone. And as planners and as government, the best you can do is make this transition as easy for them as possible you know and that's where the sensitivity comes into place brb's expansion was um inevitable i think now that we look back but it could have been done at a better way it could have been dealt with more sensitivity and same is with the case of street vendors i don't support that street vendors should be allowed to to sell anywhere they want anytime they want but i support that every human being should have a fair chance at livelihood and unfortunately we don't have many formal jobs available for everyone in the city and i hear these narratives which are very stupid in my opinion, saying people should go back to their villages. I mean, can we hear ourselves say that? Everybody has a has a, a dream for their family. Everybody wants their children to go to a good school, get good education, get good job opportunities. Everybody is seeking for a better world for their family. And for that, 
moving to a city has become inevitable in an era like ours where most of the opportunities are fortunately unfortunately consolidated in a smaller area like ours and when we don't have many formal jobs people are desperate to to seek for other alternatives that they can that so that they can provide for their family so that they can have their children also go to better schools so when when we start to see social dynamics like that come to play we start to be more empathetic towards people we start to see things more than the legal angle of black and white we start to realize that as cities we need to be more accommodating and laws can be flexible we can create systems where both can coexist the formal and the informal economy can coexist for example we can create a two years uh, license where a street vendor can uh, practice um, uh, street vending for two years at certain times at allocated places but after two years they have to move to formal ways that means they have to rent a shutter for example that gives them enough time to for example um make good living or be able to amass enough finances to to move into the formal economy without evicting them or without treating them as criminals similarly recently what happened was the city was confiscating materials from the vendors when you park illegally the government gives you a chit you pay a fine they don't take over your car right but why was it different for street vendors and the protest that was happening recently was exactly for this and and again from the mayor side i understand that they have their limitations they don't own public land like i mentioned earlier there are so many limitations to how a, a local government can practice their rights so we need to understand the limitations of the government and also the desperation of people and always try to find a way which is the least harming to the bottom of the pyramid and i think that should be the way forward when we are talking about urban planning we have to touch one of its a key components which is transportation let's discuss some of other projects in the valley especially in transport related issues and actions considering the examples of the projects like a lalitpur cycle lane and the new expressway which is painted red like you mentioned earlier and the parking restrictions what common themes do you see in these decisions and how we deal with some of the valley's urban planning problems related to transportation right we've all seen cycle lanes in uh, lalitpur city since i'm a resident of this place i can talk more broadly on that when i saw the the uh, green lanes for the first time i was of course happy and i i as a driver also tried my best to avoid uh, the green painted lanes um, even at peak traffic times but later on it started to make less and less sense because the, those lanes were seemingly emptier than other lanes and people were naturally encroaching the cycle lane because uh, the traffic was incredibly congested and uh, it was just impossible in a in three four lane uh, road uh, it's it's very difficult to have a dedicated cycle lane which is not demarcated with any physical barrier but purely painted and it's very difficult to stop people from driving there and it was I think it was a good try by the city in trying to uh, aware the citizens that there are cyclists also in this road and they also need a safe space to drive. However, 
I don't think it was successful because, like I said, we have too many vehicles on the road right now. And without decreasing the number of private vehicles, without consolidating or making it more efficient for people to travel in smaller spaces like like buses or or rails or tra- you know trams, whatever it is, it it's not gonna be efficient to just paint the roads. However, there is an upside to 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 it. Um, I don't have data to back it up, but a lot of my friends from Cycle Society have mentioned that they have noticed a change in behavior from people. As long as the roads are empty, people generally try to avoid uh, driving from uh, the cycle lanes and uh, people less and less number of people uh, choose to uh, drive on the cycle lane since it has been painted less people um, park uh, uh, on the roadside because now they know that this is an active lane and people need to move through it so people don't just park for a, even for a minute or two because that obstructs the whole traffic operation so it has seen some positive impacts but again like i mentioned earlier without consolidated efforts of making public transportation more robust efficient and faster than private transportation these efforts will only be a drop in the ocean moving forward shrinkala let's talk about other upcoming cities of nepal What are the potentials you see in Kathmandu and other cities and some projects that you are currently excited to pursue or want to see being pursued? Maybe you can also share some examples of humane design and innovation in urban planning from your experiences working globally. I think this is an important topic that we haven't touched upon that is cities outside of Kathmandu when we say Kathmandu i want to highlight that Kathmandu being the capital city and the most densely populated city can create a benchmark for many other cities oftentimes Kathmandu has the most resources to implement these things to hire consultants to do the right thing which other cities might not have so setting a right precedence is very important and Kathmandu is in the right position to do that when i say Kathmandu I mean most major cities inside Kathmandu which is Kathmandu Bhaktapur Lalitpur and especially Kathmandu metropolitan city being the eldest the biggest whatever you call it the guardian city of the whole country if you may um i have always had this idea of creating cycle cities outside of Kathmandu valley in smaller cities all all throughout Nepal Chitwan for example i i lived in Hetora Chitwan is a city very close to my hometown Chitwan has always been known as a cycle city and it has the highest ownership or the highest number of cycle per capita in Nepal which is declining unfortunately as time goes by uh, we've also seen rapid uh, development in uh, road infrastructure in that city you'll see that even in farther distances from the city center there will be pitch black roads with well painted lanes and street lights sometimes uh, with barricades and all um, in in chitwan which is uh, very exciting so chitwan could actually lead a pilot in uh, implementing uh, the cycle city agenda in implementing the walkability agenda also because chitwan is at a place where uh, the roads are already wide or they have space to to utilize the roads that they have the congestion has not reached at its peak so we have space to, to implement actionable plans immediately unlike Kathmandu where we need to first solve congestion before we even think about a dedicated cycle lane right so i feel like other cities are at a perfect position like chitwan to implement these ideas and 
I think they should go for it. You know, we don't have to look to Kathmandu for everything. Other cities can set examples as well. And I've I've seen that Nepal is very good at copying good things. When good things happen, other mayors want to do it too. When good things happen, others want to copy it too. Why don't we we start novel ideas and take the lead uh, as smaller cities also? Thank you so much, Shankala, for sharing your time and knowledge with us. This was an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for giving me this platform. Thanks for listening to Pods by PEI. I hope you enjoyed Sudipa's conversation with Shinkala on Kathmandu's urban planning principles and priorities. Today's episode was produced by me, Kushi Hang, with support from Nirjan Rai, Sonia Jimmy, and Ritesh Sapkota. The episode was recorded at PEI Studio and was edited by Nirjan Rai and Ritesh Sapkota. Our theme music is courtesy of Rohit Shakya from Zindabad. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Also, please do us a favor by sharing us on social media and leaving a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to the show. For PEI's video-related content, please search for Policy Entrepreneurs on YouTube. To catch the latest from us on Nepal's policy and politics, please follow us on Twitter at Tweet2PEI. That's T-W-E-E-T followed by the number 2 and P-E-I. And on Facebook at Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. You can also visit PEI.Center to learn more about us. Thanks once again from me, Kushi. We will see you soon in our next episode.